time. And so we want you to know that we, that you are an important um, part of this church family. And we continue to pray for you. And um, as you do have prayer needs, or if you would um, like to meet with an elder or pastor, um, you can use the prayer request button on our homepage to let us know that. We, we do want to keep connected with you as much as is possible. I just have a couple of announcements for us this evening. Um, the church has reserved uh, Doolittle Park in Birchwood for an all-church uh, camping weekend, August 14th to 16th. And uh, sites are $35 for RVs and uh, just $15 for tents. Um, if you'd like to reserve a site, um, you need to do so by um, Monday, July 13th, and you can do that by calling uh, Carla Hargrave. Um, there's flyers back at the welcome desk there with her number and other details on there. Uh, our annual business meeting will be next Sunday at 1 p.m., and uh, plan to eat um, elsewhere ahead of time, and then you can come back and be a chance to learn about what's been happening with various ministries throughout the year, um, opportunity to ask questions, and uh, members will be voting on uh, two elder nominees, uh, but everybody is welcome to attend. And then lastly, uh, there will be two men's min ministry events here in July. There'll be a, a men's hangout uh, next Saturday evening after second service, um, just a casual time um, for guys to come out and talk and um, enjoy some snacks. And then there'll be a prayer breakfast on July 18th. And we are trying to get an accurate number um, for a food count, so uh, please sign up either online or you can sign up at the welcome desk as well. So uh, Pastor Cody has a uh, celebration with us, and I'll uh, leave you guessing what that's going to be about. Hey, everyone. Well, as you can tell, it is the 4th of July by what we have outside, and I dressed festive. Anyone else have red, white, and blue on? It's okay. There's a few of you. All right, good. We are, as Christians, we, we have a different way of looking at things, which is good. And uh, with that, um, we want to think of our freedom first that we have in Christ. And that's something that we celebrate and that we, we know that we have. And the beauty of that is seen in how we worship and how we serve others. So I want you to know that um, as we celebrate 4th of July, and I don't know if uh, you'll be going to a place where there's fireworks or not, but there are some places that do that. But remember the freedom that we have because of the price that he paid. And uh, I hope that this weekend you're able to spend time with family and do that. So... That's one thing I wanted to share. Also, just a couple other announcements or just reminders. One is, Eric said that next week is the business meeting. It's the week after. So not next week, but it's in two weeks. The 19th is the day that we have our annual business meeting. But be ready for that and hope you can join us with that. And also, I want to just say a couple things about social distancing. This is an easy crowd to talk to about that. Um, you've chosen maybe this service because it's an easier service to be at because of maybe your work schedule or whatever, or it's just easier for you to be social distancing this way, which is great. 
and uh, we want to provide that for you. With that, just we want to encourage you that, that you may be um, fine with hugging people, but not everyone is. And, and we as a church are trying to figure out the best way to do this church together. Um, the first service that we have on Sunday mornings is pretty full. So we're just trying to find ways to, to make sure that we're really being doing our best to care for one another. And uh, we are very fortunate that we as a church are open and uh, continue to pray for churches as they go through trying to figure out how to do this. Because some churches are not open. There's a church in our city here that most of the people are over 65, and they're just struggling on how to care for their people. So before uh, Pastor Tony comes up and preaches, I want to pray. Pray for our church and just pray for how we can care for one another in this time. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the privilege of worshiping together. And I think way back when it was cold out, we had Easter, and we re were reminded of the underground church who doesn't get the privilege of having open doors where they can walk in. They have to hide and be in buildings where no one knows, but they still worship you. And we're reminded that even if you don't have a building or don't have a group of people, or if you're in jail, you can still worship God. Even if you don't have a voice, you can still worship so, Lord, we pray for those of our congregation, those of our local body who are unable to meet right now with us. I think of some of the elderly that I've talked to that just aren't ready to come to a public gathering like this. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be with them as they view things online, as they study the word at home. I, I pray that you strengthen them or encourage them where they're at. And, Lord, we thank you for this privilege to gather to celebrate as a country the freedoms we have, the, the liberties we have. And as Christians, we have a special way of honoring and respect, I think, more than others would have. And Lord, finally, I pray that you would anoint Pastor Tony as he brings the word to us this evening. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, worship team, for leading us before the throne. You can have a seat. It's so good to worship together. I love that song, and it fits perfectly with where God is leading us tonight in His Scriptures. just want to say good evening and welcome. Happy Fourth of July weekend to all of you. If you're new to Maranatha or visiting with us this weekend, we want to welcome you and say that we're so glad that you've joined us. And Again, as Pastor Eric acknowledged, for those of you who are worshiping with us online due to COVID, please know that we miss you and we long for the day and pray for the day when we can see everyone face-to-face -face and be all together again. We pray that you're able to connect, whether it's via Zoom or with a small group and do some Bible studies or connect with others in the body of Christ for mutual encouragement and Christian fellowship. For those who may not know me, my name is Tony Nord, and I'm youth pastor here at Maranatha, and it is a joy to have the opportunity to preach this weekend as we continue our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Pastor Cody has been taking us book by book through the Old Testament and helping us to see how it all points forward to Jesus. And this summer, we're focusing in on the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets, and so far we've covered Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. Today, we're looking for Jesus in the book of Jonah. As Pastor Cody reminded us last week, the Old Testament prophets lived, ministered, and wrote during three main time periods, it's often referred to as pre-exile, exile, and post-exile. Bible scholars date Jonah around 760 B.C. during the pre-exile period. If you have 
kids or teens, or even if you don't, I would highly recommend that you check out the series on Right Now Media that's called What's in the Bible by Phil Vischer. There are a couple of videos in that series that help explain the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And I've linked those videos on the Maranatha channel of Right Now Media. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have connected, been on Right Now Media to watch something in the past year? Okay, good. Just a, hand, a handful of you, quite a few of you. Um, We're continuing to offer that as a free um, thing for our church. If you're not aware of that, let us know if you want to get connected. Um, thousands of resources on there. But they have uh, these, they're geared for kids, but they're great for adults as well. These ones um, by Phil Vischer called What's in the Bible. The big idea we've been looking at through our examination of the minor prophets is that the minor prophets show us a glimpse of God's wake-up call and also the hope of God's love that will not let us go, which is ultimately found in Christ. As I was reflecting this week on the overall series we're going through as we study what the Old Testament teaches us about Jesus, I thought about Where's Waldo books. Um, um, and I want to illustrate the, uh, I think these, uh, the Where's Waldo books illustrate the, the idea of searching for Christ in the Old Testament. So by show of hands, how many of you have ever taken the challenge of trying to find Waldo in your life? Have you ever? Quite a few of you, most of you, Good. Maybe some of the younger ones haven't, haven't done it yet, but um, sometimes finding Jesus in the Old Testament is a little bit like trying to find Waldo in one of his books. He's there, but you've got to look. You've got to search. But it's rewarding when you find him, right? It's exciting, rewarding. And in certain sections of the Old Testament, it's kind of like that, looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. But in other sections of the Old Testament, seeing how the Scripture points to Jesus is much more obvious. It's more like the new edition of Where's Waldo that came out in recent months called the Where's Waldo Social Distancing Edition. In these parts of the Old Testament, Jesus jumps off the pages at us. And having had the opportunity to study Jonah quite deeply during my time in seminary and my Hebrew classes with Dr. McGarry, I now feel like Jonah is more like the Where's Waldo Social Distancing Edition. There are certain ways in which Jonah so clearly points us to Jesus. As we examine Jonah today, my hope and prayer is that together we will clearly see Jesus in Jonah. Jonah addresses struggles many of us wrestle with in our own sinfulness. We have a tendency to want mercy for ourselves, but justice for everyone else. We also tend to forget that God cares about reaching all nations with the good news of the gospel. In order to understand the book of Jonah well, I think we must understand something a bit unique about its genre. Let me try to illustrate what I mean by reading you a short news article I came across recently from the Babylon Bee. Husband daycare now available at all Hobby Lobby locations. In a move to help oppressed husbands who are forced to walk around the craft store in a daze for hours as they lose all sense of time and space, Hobby Lobby has unveiled its new husband daycares at all of its U.S. stores. At the beginning of a woman's shopping trip to Hobby Lobby, she can check her husband into the daycare for up to three hours, as long as he's trained to put the toilet seat back down. She also has to sign a waiver that she's responsible for any spills or messes he makes, though most of the women are already used to that anyway. The patented Hobby Lobby husband daycare is fully stocked with root beer, pizza, video games, televisions, and even an old car to work on with a provided set of tools, though most of the men seem to stand there nodding and saying, yep even though they don't know what's wrong with the car. 
The two or three hours their wives spend browsing wooden and metal decor will fly by as they knock out a game of Madden or watch a baseball game. Upon opening of the daycare's Hobby Lobby sales increased fourfold as husbands began begging their wives to spend as much time as they wanted at the craft store. Sometimes, um, I'm sorry, um, let me ask you this. By show of hands, how many of you are not familiar with the Babylon Bee news source? Okay, most of you have already been familiar with it. If you happen to be in that crowd and you've never heard of the Babylon Bee, it's more likely that when I began reading this article, you were slightly confused, maybe surprised you hadn't thought of this brilliant idea yourself. For those of you who are familiar with the Babylon Bee, you know this, it's a Christian-themed satire. Many of you know what satire is, but for those who may not, satire is the use of irony, sarcasm, ridicule, or the like in exposing, denouncing, or deriding vice, folly, etc. A second definition is a literary composition in verse or prose in which human folly and vice are held up to scorn, derision, or ridicule. So ladies, as wonderful of an idea as husband daycare sounds at Hobby Lobby, please don't show up next week at Hobby Lobby and ask about it. The entire Babylon Bee website is filled with satirical articles poking fun at a variety of things in our culture, including some goofy things that we do in our Christian subculture. If you're easily offended, I would not recommend visiting their site. And if you think they're being serious, you're going to be confused, offended, and miss out on some great humor. Likewise, if we don't understand the rich irony that fills the book of Jonah, we may miss out on some key themes and insights. Some scholars understand the book of Jonah to be written as a form of satire. Another commentator views Jonah to be functioning somewhat as a comic dupe, which is a foolish character that comes to be a tool by which to drive home profound ideas and truths. Another example of comic dupe in the Bible is Balaam and his talking donkey in Numbers 22 to 24. Jonah is believed to be the author of this book that holds his name. And whether functioning as satire or comic dupe, Jonah is likely poking fun at his own ridiculousness through the use of vivid irony that exposes his own self-centered grasp of God's mercy and love. As we look for Jesus in Jonah today, my hope is that we will understand this main thing, that because Jonah's selfish disobedience highlights God's mercy and Jesus' selfless obedience, we ought to be broken by our sin and blown away by God's mercy. There are two main questions we must ask in this sermon to help us understand Jonah and to see Jesus. What is the message of the book of Jonah, and how does Jonah point us to Jesus? So first, what is the message of the book of Jonah? The Bible Project describes the book of Jonah as a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who despises his God for loving his enemies. I thought that was a really succinct, helpful capturing of the book. Another commentator that I have found helpful in examining Jonah's message, he notes that Jonah has a major narrative focus in chapter 4 on the themes of human pride, divine freedom, and the breadth of God's mercy. The commentators in the Jesus Bible, yes, there is a Bible called the Jesus Bible. The rest of yours are not Jesus' Bible, I guess, but it is actually kind of a helpful uh, tool um, I borrowed from Pastor Cody this week. But in the, the editors of the Jesus Bible th- uh, note that in the book of Jonah, we are reminded that God's mission includes all the nations of the world. He is the rightful king who can do with nations as he sees fit, even choosing to bless those who turn to him for salvation. 
God is free to show mercy to any person and any nation at any time that he wills. Jonah's sorrow over Nineveh's repentance shows his narrow view of God's kindness. So, What is the message of the book of Jonah? I'd like us to approach answering this question by focusing on the use of irony and literary foils in the book of Jonah. But what is a foil? As a literary device, a foil is a character who is set up as a contrast with another character to help highlight certain characteristics of the main character. And let me be clear about something as we talk about the use of foils in Scripture. I believe there is very good reason to believe that the book of Jonah is historical, not merely a parable or fable, as some might argue. The use of foils in the book of Jonah does not imply or require that we view it as a fictional story. We can hold to a historical view of Jonah while simultaneously appreciating the rich irony and the use of foils to help communicate theological truths about historical events. So most of us know the overall storyline of Jonah. We learn it in Sunday school in every children's Bible, right? God calls Jonah to preach against Nineveh because of its wickedness. Jonah runs away in the opposite direction. As Jonah is fleeing on a ship, God sends a great storm. It becomes clear to the sailors that Jonah is the reason for the storm, and after exhausting all other options, they reluctantly throw Jonah overboard, rightly fearing the power of the one true God and making vows to him. God sends a great fish to rescue Jonah from certain death by swallowing him. Jonah cries out to God from the depths of the sea. God commands the great fish to vomit Jonah out after three days, and it obeys. The word of the Lord comes a second time to Jonah. This time, Jonah gets up and goes to Nineveh, but does a pretty half-hearted job of proclaiming God's message to them. Despite Jonah's half-hearted attempt to proclaim God's message, the entire city responds rightly by repenting and holding out hope for God's mercy. God extends mercy, as God is known to do. Jonah becomes angry and says to God, I knew it, this is my paraphrase, I knew it, I knew you would do this, these creeps deserve to die because of the, what they have done to your people, and yet you just have to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, don't you, God? Jonah has a little hissy fit and says it would be better for him to die than to live. And God provides an object lesson for Jonah as Jonah waits outside the city, hoping God will go through with his original threat to destroy the Ninevites so he can watch the fireworks and relish in his enemy's demise. God's object lesson involves a shade plant, a worm, and a scorching wind to function as a sort of mirror held up for Jonah so that he can see better his own sinful heart and to better understand God's lavish mercy. And the book ends with Yahweh's question to Jonah lingering in the air. In this historical accounting of Jonah's life, there are various characters that function as a literary foil. Let's look at a handful of them to help us understand what Jonah is all about before we turn our attention to answering the question, how does Jonah point us to Jesus? First, the pagan sailors function as a foil to Jonah. Jonah identifies himself to the sailors, saying in Jonah 1.9, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord which means Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. See, Jonah is among God's chosen people, and he knows it. In God's covenant with Abram, God promised to bless Abram and to make him into many nations, but his promise of blessing was not for the Hebrews alone. God told Abram in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. 
I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Of all people in this story, the Hebrew prophet of God ought to truly know God and fear God and truly worship God, not merely with words, but with actions that flow out of a heart of love for God. Yet these pagan sailors truly feared the Lord. They tried to row back to shore because they did not want to be guilty of taking another man's life. They had a respect for life, even the life of Jonah, who recklessly endangered all of their lives because of his own disobedience. These pagan sailors cried out to the Lord, begging for mercy, even acknowledging God's sovereignty and freedom to do as he pleases, something Jonah is still unwilling to see or submit to. After they reluctantly throw Jonah overboard and the sea calmed down, the sailors greatly feared the Lord and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him, Jonah 1.16. Jonah did not fear the Lord, whom he was supposedly representing, both by simply being a Hebrew and even more so by being a prophet of the Lord. Jonah did not offer sacrifices to the Lord, nor did he make vows to him. Here, at the beginning of the book of Jonah, the sailors function as a foil to Jonah because they behave much more in the manner Jonah should have behaved. In addition, the Ninevites function as a foil to Jonah. So in a very similar way to the pagan sailors, the people of Nineveh in chapter 3 also function as a foil to Jonah, highlighting how unlike God he is behaving, while his pagan enemies respond rightly to God and to God's threat of judgment. Jonah preaches his one-sentence, half-hearted sermon of doom in 40 days. The text says that Jonah had just begun his way into the great city and said the bare minimum, and yet, ironically, by God's grace, the people of Nineveh respond in mass with what is described as robust repentance, pictured vividly in their king's repentance in Jonah 3, 6. When I was in seminary and had the opportunity to study Jonah, um, this is from one of the papers myself and another classmate put together as we, we wrote 11 pages on one verse, Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, just learning how much you can dig out of one verse of the Scripture. It just blew me away. That class was one of my favorite classes. My worst grade, because it was just overwhelming, but one of my favorite classes, favorite professors. And just if you look on the right side here, you see what the king did. And the words in the Hebrew, and obviously in the English too, you see that he, he was sitting on his throne. I don't have a throne up here to sit on. But he's sitting on a throne, and he, he arose. He got up. He took off his royal robes, and then he put on sackcloth, and then he sat down in the ashes. And so you see he arose, he removed, covered, and sat down. There's this 180-degree difference in the verbs that are used in this verse of Jonah. And it's this, this beautiful, powerful, poignant picture of true, genuine repentance. You see it clearly, especially in the, in the Hebrew. Um, it's just a powerful thing. And so the king himself, representing the whole people of Nineveh, respond correctly to God's threat of judgment. The seriousness, seriousness with which the Ninevites took their sin and the comprehensiveness of their response is nothing short of miraculous. But it is the repentance of these enemies of Israel that highlights Jonah's own hard-heartedness and selfish claim on God's great mercy. In the book of Jonah, it's not just the people, though, who function as foils to Jonah 
animals also serve as a foil to Jonah. We see three specific examples. The great fish in chapter 1, the livestock in Nineveh in chapter 3, and the worm in chapter 4. The livestock in Nineveh function as a sort of foil to Jonah in the same way as the people of Nineveh function as a foil for Jonah. For even the animals seem to be included in this act of repentance and fasting and wearing of sackcloth. It's comical. I mean, there, it is a comedy, a tragic comedy in some ways. Um, the great fish and the worm serve as a foil to Jonah in a very simple manner. When God gave these two animals a command, the text shows that they obeyed immediately without hesitation. The big fish was sent or provided by God. The worm was sent or provided by God. But in contrast, when Jonah was given a command, he ran in the other direction. And even when he was given a second chance, it seems that Jonah's heart was not in the task. And his attitude was still selfish. In addition to people and animals, even the wind serves as a foil to Jonah. We see this in chapter 1 and in chapter 4. When Jonah disobeys God hurls a great wind across the sea to create a storm to get Jonah's attention. The wind obeys God's command immediately. And in chapter 4, God sends a scorching east wind to get Jonah's attention and teach him an object lesson. Again, the wind obeys immediately. In sharp contrast, Jonah does not obey. So we see in the book of Jonah that the pagan sailors, the Ninevites, the animals, and the wind all function as foils to Jonah, revealing something about the character of this prophet of God. Jonah himself also functions as a foil. He functions as a foil to the other Old Testament prophets. Last week, Pastor Cody explained that the Old Testament prophets were characterized by five things. They were called by God, godly man, and spokesman, ambassador for God, and watchman. Well, Jonah is called by God, but after that it kind of falls apart for him. He doesn't seem to be a godly man. He's a poor spokesman, a terrible ambassador for God, and his warning of God's judgment to the Ninevites could barely even be described as half-hearted. He couldn't care less for the Ninevites and doesn't even remotely represent the compassion and mercy of God. Jonah's failures as a prophet function to highlight the godliness and obedience of many of the other Old Testament prophets. Granted, they all had their faults too. But in comparison to Jonah, many of the others were like saints. Isaiah was told by God to go around stripped and barefoot for three years, and he obeyed. Jeremiah was told by God to walk around with an oxen yoke around his neck, and he obeyed. You think it's weird to go in the store with a mask on? Think about just walking in with a big oxen yoke around your shoulders. People might look at you funny. Hosea was told by God to marry a woman who would end up being unfaithful to him as a sign of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And guess what? Hosea obeyed. By and large, the Old Testament prophets served God faithfully proclaiming his message to God's people and to other groups as well. The minor prophets proclaim God's wake-up call, as well as a message of hope and God's love that will not let us go. Jonah himself not only serves as a foil to the Old Testament prophets, but he also serves as a foil to God. When we see Jonah's character rawly displayed as though all pretense of godliness has been stripped away and the nakedness of his sin has been laid bare for the world to see. In this, we see a stark contrast with the abounding grace and generous mercy of our great God. When Jonah has a tantrum regarding his favorite plant, dying in chapter 4, and claims his life is no longer worth living, we see the contrast God makes with his condemning question that hangs in the air at the end of this brilliant book. God says, and should I not have concern 
for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. That's where the book ends. God just leaves his question hanging there. The God of the Bible is just as Jonah accused him of being. Jonah said, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He said it, and he was right, but he said it with accusation and anger. Author E.M. Good once wrote, the alternative to Jonah's absurdity is the absurdity of God. Jonah serves as a foil to God himself in that Jonah's absurdity highlights God's absurdity. To a world that has never personally experienced the lavish love, great grace, and marvelous mercy of God, God's actions often seem absurd. I mean, who in their right mind would forgive such a cruel and ruthless nation as the Assyrians? They deserve judgment. They earn their own demise. From the world's perspective, why in the world didn't God just strike the disobedient, hypocritical Jonah dead? Why didn't God just send a shark to shred Jonah to bits and be done with him? From a worldly perspective, God is indeed absurd. But it is his absurd compassion and love that drive him to extend grace and mercy on people like you and people like me that don't deserve a drop of it. Praise the Lord for who he is and for what he has done. So what is the story of Jonah about? It is about a God of mercy who does what he wills, even to extend grace upon those whom seem, whom seem least deserving and most unlikely to respond to it. Well, maybe you were in that place at one time, far, far away from God and considered too far to be redeemed. Praise the Lord that he extends grace and mercy to sinners like us. The second and final question we must answer is this. How does Jonah point us to Jesus? Having examined the use of foils in the book of Jonah, it may be as obvious to you as a Where's Waldo social distancing edition. Let me continue using the lens of literary foils to show how Jonah points forward 700 years and serves as a foil to Jesus as well. At risk of stating the obvious, Jesus is better than Jonah. Jesus and Jonah have numerous things in common that connect their stories, but it is the contrast between them that help us see Jesus more clearly. Jonah was a prophet, a messenger of God, albeit a poor one. One day, another messenger would come onto the earth. Like Jonah, this future messenger would sleep on a ship during a raging storm. Like Jonah, this future messenger would spend three days in utter darkness in the belly of the earth. Like Jonah, this messenger would be sent to sinful people to preach a message of repentance. Unlike Jonah, however, this future messenger would fully obey God. Unlike Jonah, he would love his enemies. Unlike Jonah, he would demonstrate God's great love to a dying world. And how do we know what love is? This is love, that a man would lay down his life for his brother. 1 John 3, 16 to 18 says, This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, <clears throat> Jonah, <clears throat> how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us, Maranatha, not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. 
Unlike Jonah, this future messenger rejoices over lost sheep being found and dead brothers coming alive. Unlike Jonah, this future messenger celebrates and mirrors the grace and mercy of God, one who is indeed slow to anger and abounding in love. Unlike Jonah, this future messenger cares more about people than plants. Of course, Jesus is that future messenger. When Jesus looked upon the crowds, even when he was tired and worn out physically, Jesus had compassion on them, seeing them like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9, 36. When disobedient Jonah was thrown into the sea, the wind and waves calmed down. In contrast, when obedient Jesus spoke to the wind and waves, they obeyed his voice. Why? Because he has authority over them as their creator. In Matthew 12, 38 to 41, Jesus refers back to Jonah. See, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were asking him questions, and they asked Jesus for a sign. Jesus responds, saying, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The editors of the Jesus Bible say it well. This is the sign of Jonah. Jonah almost drowned under the wrath of God, spent three days in the belly of the fish, and then he was brought out alive on the other side to carry out his commission to go to Nineveh. But Jesus, the true and better Jonah, was engulfed under God's complete wrath at Calvary's cross. He spent three days in the belly of the earth and came out alive on the other side to carry out his commission to the nations through you and me, through his followers, through the great commission of Matthew 28. Jesus gave the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and all others a sign to his power and divinity. It's the empty tomb. Skeptics, agnostics, atheists must deal with the historical reality of the empty tomb. Yes, there are a variety of possibilities, but the most reasonable explanation to the empty tomb is the one given in the Bible. The tomb of Jesus is empty because he has risen just as he said. As we come to know Jesus as revealed in the New Testament, we can also see how Jonah functions powerfully as a foil to Jesus himself. When we understand Jonah well, we come to deeply to, to understand Jesus better, and when we understand Jesus better, we ought to love Jesus more deeply and enjoy worshiping him more passionately. When you think about who Jesus is and what he is like and what he has done, doesn't it make you want to worship him and delight in him and to just be amazed by him? My prayer is that this is the result, that this is the outcome of the time we've shared together in God's word. Because Jonah's selfish disobedience highlights God's great mercy and Jesus' selfless obedience, we ought to be broken by our sin and blown away by God's mercy. In many ways, we are like the Ninevites, broken by sin, twisted and corrupt, selfish and cruel, separated because of our own sinfulness from a God who loves us and relentlessly pursues us, a God who is gracious and compassionate. We are desperately in need of salvation. In other ways, we're like Jonah, running away from God's clear commands, like his great commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, Sometimes we are like Jonah in that we want salvation ourselves, but we don't think others deserve the same grace of God. We experience hurt from other people 
in their sin against us. And in our pain and in our anger, we want to see the full fury of God's wrath poured out on these people who have hurt us so deeply. We want our enemies to drink the cup of God's great wrath. Well, praise the Maker. The salvation of other sinners like us does not depend entirely on us. God is graciously rescuing others, sometimes through us, but sometimes in spite of us. God's plan of salvation cannot be stopped. Satan may have thought he stopped God on that dark day some 2,000 years ago at the place of the skull when Jesus suffered and died in your place and in mine, but after three of the darkest days this world has ever seen, the light dawned on the third day and Jesus rose victoriously from the grave. Praise God that Jesus was a better prophet than Jonah, one who fully obeyed, fully surrendered, fully appreciated God's grace and generously offered it to all who would repent and place their trust in Jesus, the only one who can save. Have you tasted his mercy? Have you been broken over the reality of your sin? Have you truly and sincerely, 180 degrees, repented, not merely through quoting scriptures, but through genuine actions like the Ninevites? Remember the words of Joel that Pastor Eric preached about mid-June. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Sound familiar? Don't just make an outward appearance of being broken over your sin. Instead, allow God to wreck you on the inside, to break your heart over your sin and our sin collectively and to help you see your desperate need, our desperate need for a Savior. Do you fear the Lord and seek his grace and mercy? Have you put your faith in Jesus and the work that he did on the cross to pay the penalty for sin so wretched sinners like you and me and the Ninevites can be washed white as snow like we sung about and reconciled to God if you haven't, let me invite you today to do so for the first time. Talk to a pastor or a friend after service. We would lo love nothing more on this weekend that celebrates our nation's freedom to help you experience freedom from sin and help you come to repentance and experience the love and mercy of God. If you are already part of God's family, praise the Lord. If you've experienced the forgiveness through Christ, isn't that wonderful? But perhaps your heart has grown calloused and bitterness has taken root inside you or unforgiveness has led you to despise God's mercy for those who've hurt you. For you, my prayer is that you would allow the story of Jonah and the beauty of Jesus to soften your heart and allow you to not only appreciate God's grace for others, but to extend it as well. Often we conclude our times together by responding in worship through song. Today, however, I've, I've chosen for us to simply conclude our service with a moment of quiet reflection, and then I will pray and pronounce a benediction. As I give you a moment to reflect, I encourage you to pray and ask God uh, to help you know how he wants you to respond to the worship, worship service today. So spend a moment thanking Jesus for being a better Jonah and pray that God would show you specifically how he wants you to respond this evening.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Jonah. And we thank you so much more for Jesus. We thank you that we do not have to try to earn our forgiveness because we cannot. We thank you that the price has been paid. Our freedom has been purchased. It wasn't free. It cost the life of your son. And for, for that, we are eternally grateful. I pray that our view of Jesus has deepened tonight as we've been reminded of many things that we've known, but things we need to be reminded of regularly. Soften our hearts. May we have a passion for the lost, be like our God in heaven who extends grace to those who seem least deserving of it. And God, I pray that we would truly live out our faith every moment of our lives, every area, in every area of our lives. And as a church, I pray that we would lead the way in this world through the many trials that we face. The church would reflect you well. that people would see the light of God shining through us. Not for our glory, but for your glory, we pray. Now, may I extend the benediction, which is a good word. May the God who richly extends grace and mercy to sinners like the Ninevites and like you and me, through the sacrifice of his one and only son, Jesus the Messiah, may he be our joy and delight this week and always. Go delight in Jesus, the better Jonah. Have a wonderful week.